broadcasting from Punta Gorda, Florida, where I am on my 30-foot troller playing softball and collecting seashells. This is the Campus Future Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 29, Peter Adderton's Confusion. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome to the FLF Network, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLFnetwork.com, and the Campus Preacher, CampusPreacher.com. And this is a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And this is our 29th episode, and we're going to finish up this Peter Adderton article from the New York Times back in March. And um, I'm currently in Florida, where it is uh, very humid. And when you spend most of your time in northern Idaho or in California... Uh, you don't really deal with this humidity. So it's probably not that bad, and I'm just extremely uh, weather weak. Um, So I'm going to head out of Florida tomorrow. might get worse up in Alabama, where I will be um, in Dothan, Alabama, for the next uh, four or five days, and hopefully head over to Atlanta, and then not sure where I'm going from there to uh, get the semester kicked off and started, Um, maybe northern Idaho, uh, maybe elsewhere. So... um, yeah, that's the game plan. But but this week's been pretty pretty mundane. Um, I feel like I've been able to have a lot of good conversations uh, most other weeks, and uh, basically I've spent the past week traveling and visiting friends and family, and so I've really have not had too much interaction with uh, any unbelievers and really anybody who uh, disagrees with me because most of my time has been spent with uh, uh, fellow believers for the past week, and uh, so. Once the semester starts, that will change. And so today, uh, pretty simple and straightforward. Um, a couple weeks ago, I started and I got de- uh, sidetracked, I guess, um, uh, interacting with uh, Peter Atkins article uh, from March 25th uh, called A God Problem. And we've already looked at uh, the basic idea of uh, God's benevolence, uh, or at least a strand of benevolence, and also God's omnipotence. And now we're going to take a look at his, the idea of omniscience, because uh, basically what a lot of people want to argue is that these ideas are incompatible, and they're incoherent, and therefore God does not exist. And... Um, at the very least, in the way they define these terms, um, you can say that God does not exist. Yes, that is an incoherent uh, idea. That is a contradictory idea. Therefore, that God does not exist. Um, but what we're seeking to do here is address the issue of uh, who is Yahweh. Um, for the nations have their gods. Our God is Yahweh, and who is he? And one of the things he does address here is um, what is known as a concept of the God of the philosophers. And so he kind of starts off the article with the idea of the God of the philosophers, and then he ends it by um, uh, tapping into uh, Blaise Pascal's uh, uh, rejection of reason as a basis for faith, and he says, and return to the Bible in Revelation. It is said that when Pascal died, his servant found sewn into his jacket the words, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Evidently, Pascal considered there was more wisdom, that he puts in quotes, in biblical revelation than any philosophical demonstration of God's existence and nature, or plain uh, lack thereof. And this is uh, a lot of uh, one of the one of the things with this it's the sort of thing where you can spend a lot of time responding because there's so much confusion and he collapses so many categories and here's a guy who's a professor at San Diego State University and I, I would just say this is very bad thinking um, so he kind of starts off with the God of the philosophers he intertwines Aquinas and he intertwines some 
uh, Christian thinking and Christian thinkers, and then he uh, just kind of juxtaposes uh, the idea of the God of the philosophers. So think about this for a second. So um, he's claiming, you know, he starts off with the God of the philosophers, and he lays out the idea of uh, omnipotence and omniscience and uh, whether or not God is good and omnibenevolence. And then he uh, seeks to show that these things are in, uh, inconsistent and coherent, and therefore uh, this God cannot exist. And what he ends up doing, and what we uh, need to do oftentimes when we're interacting with people and doing evangelism, even real basic things, and, and, and especially as we get further and further away from a Christian culture, uh, when people talk about God, um, don't just immediately assume they're referring to Yahweh. Um, if you were sitting down with a Muslim and they were talking about God, uh, your ears would uh, perk up and um, you'd begin to have a discussion with them of the differences. Or if you're sitting down with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and uh, the idea of God would not uh, allow you to collapse all those categories into your head. So even if you're sitting down at a table and people are just using the term president, um, it's very reasonable to ask the president of what or which president. If we're talking about the president of the United States, which president? Are we talking about the president of a company? What exactly are we talking about here? And that's one of the good things about an article like this is it gets us to step back and begin to uh, hopefully lay out clearly what we mean by the term God. And I'm going to agree with strands of Adderton's thinking that, um, yes, if this is the God that you're referring to, uh, this God is incoherent and this God cannot exist. But the question is, who's the God of the Bible, or as Pascal would point out, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and not the God of the philosophers. Um, but where we end up collapsing things is to, uh, when we juxtapose the idea of Bible and revelation against reason um, or nature, because uh, as Christians, our position is that the Logos, uh, reason, John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Logos, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and uh, uh, he made all things. Without him was not anything made that has been made. And then the Logos became flesh uh, in John 1.14. And so when we look at the world, um, we don't have hard dichotomies between reason, revelation, creation, revelation, and uh, kind of putting all these things together. And whereas I would say the unbelieving world, uh, they are going to have trouble bringing all these things together. Um, and so we have to explain how Christianity... Um, fills these things in quite clearly and why Revelation is consistent with uh, reason and also with nature. Um, but Adderton just kind of asserts these things and kind of hopes to, uh, you know, he, he just kind of muddies the waters, and one of the main problems is in, is in definitions. And so e even on things like, um, uh, like a couple weeks ago when we discussed omnipotence, um, if all power means that God can deny himself— um, then he doesn't have all power. Uh, the Bible says that God cannot lie. The Bible cannot deny himself. And so God is good, so he cannot do those things that are contrary to his nature. And so any understanding of God's omnipotence has to be intertwined with the idea of God's nature and God's character. And so ultimately, God's omnipotence uh, means that uh, he has all authority, and there is no authority above him, and he has all authority to accomplish his will. There's nothing that can thwart his will, um, but he doesn't do the irrational, and this is going to immediately begin to tie in with the idea of how Adderton wants to lay out uh, God's omniscience, and so, for example, if uh, God is all good, um, it's very reasonable to say, well, God cannot do evil. It's contrary to the good, and so does that limit his 
omnipotence if he cannot do good? And also similarly, does it limit his omniscience uh, if he cannot do evil? So if you and I can do evil, um, we have the ability to do something that God cannot do, and we also have knowledge of doing evil that God does not have. And so that's the basic idea of where they want to say, see, omnipotence, men can do things that God cannot do. Men can also know things that God cannot know. Therefore, God is not omnipotent. Therefore, God is not omniscient. And therefore, God does not exist. And so what we need to do is clearly define omniscience and omnipotence and um, begin to tease the things out from there. And what we're going to look at today and what we're going to tease out is the idea of God's omniscience and why Adderton's discussion and understanding of omniscience is insufficient and kind of lay out a biblical idea of how omniscience, uh, biblically speaking and even philosophically speaking, uh, there's a better way forward. So starting with uh, Adderton's article here, getting into the idea of omniscience, he says, what about God's infinite knowledge, his omniscience? Philosophically, this presents us with no less of a conundrum, leaving aside the highly implausible idea that God knows all the facts in the universe, no matter how trivial or useless. Uh, Stop right there for a second. Um, Why set that aside? Why is that highly implausible? And what's interesting to me is he actually never uh, makes an argument against this, Uh, but what he does do is... uh, in parentheses, says, St. Jerome thought it was beneath the dignity of God to concern himself with such base questions as how many fleas are born or die every moment. Um, but, you know, he wants to set that aside. Uh, but I, I, I see no reason to, but we'll finish his sentence. And he goes, if God knows all there is to know, then he knows at least as much as we know. But if he knows what we know, then this would appear to detract from his perfection. Why? There are many things that we know that if they were also known to God, would automatically make him a sinner, which of course is in contradiction with the concept of God. As the late American philosopher Michael Martin has already pointed out, if God knows all there is that all is knowable, then God must know things that we do, like lust and envy. But one cannot know lust and envy unless one has experienced them. But to have had feelings of lust and envy is to have sinned, in which case God cannot be morally perfect. And then basically the rest of the illustrations he wants to bring forward are these ideas that um, you know, v- various basically aspects of evil, does God know this? And other people have said, you know, does God know what it's like to bend a knee and all of that sort of stuff. But um, I, I think there's a how we have to define omniscience um, is that God knows all true propositions and he holds no false beliefs. Um, I believe that's what, uh, when we're going to discuss God's omniscience, that's where we need to go to it. And what's interesting is even the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, if you ever have a philosophical question, um, it's a pretty good resource. Um, it's it's like a reliable Wikipedia Um And so uh, they even say this, uh, since omniscience is maximal or complete knowledge, it is typically defined in terms of knowledge of all true propositions, namely, um, you know, subject is omniscient if uh, for every proposition P, if P is true, then S knows P. Uh, That might sound confusing um, just hearing it rather than seeing it written out. But the basic idea is that uh, God is omniscient if he knows all true facts, and or if he knows the fact, and if the fact is, in fact, true, then God knows it. And our position is that God knows all uh, true facts, all true propositions, uh, both past, present, and future. And so when we're discussing God's omniscience, uh, it's not necessarily that God has experienced 
uh, sin or that God um, knows what it's like to know things necessarily. Uh, we do have to consider Jesus um, as a creature. So all of God's knowledge is the, the knowledge of that of a uh, creator. So uh, God is not Keith Darrell. And so his knowledge is not the knowledge of what I am currently experiencing right now in who I am as Keith Darrell. There's a creature-creator distinction. And so when we discuss these things um, like this, we need to be uh, fairly clear on uh, what we mean by omniscience. And, I th- and so I think it's kind of interesting that he wants to set aside... Um, uh, what he says, the um, leaving aside the highly implausible idea that God knows all the facts in the universe. Well, that's very much of how we're using the term omniscience. God is uh, knows all true propositions. And we also have a uh, further element. We don't want to just merely reduce that because God is a person, and he does know as a person, but his knowing as a person um, is that of uh, the creator uh, rather than the creature. And so we have to even keep those things in mind. So uh, you know, they do a good job playing a word game. And, and you know, if we can often treat omnipotence and omniscience abstractly and uh, fall into the trap. But what we need to do is lay out clearly what the Bible uh, is teaching or what we believe the Bible is teaching regarding uh, God's knowledge. And uh, we would say it's obvious that God is not a sinner. Even Jesus says that he was tempted in every way that we were, um, yet he was without sin. And so when you begin to think of omniscience and you want to bring in some uh, Bible verses uh, with it, kind of anchor it into something. I think Psalm 139 is, uh, it's one of those Psalms that just kind of, it's kind of boggling, because it kind of there's so much in there, uh, and this podcast is going to be some profound exegesis of this um, or exposition, um, but there, there's just so much in here. But here's how David uh, starts this thing off in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me uh, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not, uh, when there was yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I wake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and I do not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then here's how he finishes it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so 
uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few verses, even like First John three twenty, I believe it is, um, talks about our hearts and talks about uh, you know, even when our hearts condemn us, God knows all things. Um, and, and but I think if you can just kind of lock into your head Psalm one thirty nine and everything that it discusses there, you know all the you know my words before I say them, all the days of my life are written down in your book before one of them happen. Uh, you, you searched me, you know me, you know my heart, you know my lying down, you know my getting up. Uh, God knows exhaustively all things, including the hearts of every single man, including the heart of a man like Peter Adderton, and why he's writing a ridiculous article against. I wouldn't even necessarily have to say the God of the Bible, um, but as an attempt to tell people not to believe in God because it's philosophically incoherent. God knows why he's doing that, and ultimately Yahweh being light will uh, bring out his darkness and why he's uh, writing those things. And so when you uh, hear these philosophical objections, um, the first thing you got to do anytime someone's talking about God is... uh, what do you mean by God, or who do you mean by God, and uh, have them begin to lay out those ideas. And what you need to do is is know your scriptures well enough to know if what they're saying is actually true, even when your language is similar. So we're going to use the term omniscience, we're going to use the term omnipotence, we're going to use the term omnibenevolence, uh, but we're going to often use those terms differently than the way the world is using them. So we need to be uh, careful in our use of language, um, that we're not confusing our hearers, and that we can uh, from there, for ask for a definition, we can lay those things out. And so, just uh, w- another interesting, quick uh, side comment before I wrap up is um, he, uh, you know, so Adderton makes this comment. But if God doesn't know what we know, a God is not all knowing, and the concept of God is contradictory. God cannot be both omniscient and morally perfect. Um, we, as Christians and Bible believing Christians, uh, we want to qualify our understanding of those things in context of one another, in context of the scriptures. And so when the Bible says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, um, we are persuaded that there is no moral evil in God. And so if you, we're going to use the term omniscience. Um, so if you sit down and you read Psalm 139 and you tease out all the aspects in there of God's knowledge, that's what we mean by omniscience. What we don't mean is that he has Keith Darrell's first-person knowledge, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but one of the things he he does brush on here, and, and, and here's even kind of the inconsistency of the article where he flip-flops between the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible, uh, because he ends up making this comment, it's parenthetical. I shall here ignore uh, the argument that God knows what it is like to be human through Christ, because the doctrine of the Incarnation presents us with its own formidable difficulties. Was Christ really and fully human? Uh, our answer is yes. Uh, did he... Uh, have sinful desires that he was required to overcome when tempted by the devil. The Bible, Hebrews, I believe it's 4, it's not 4.12, uh, 2.14 maybe, says that uh, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin, and so he truly uh, faced uh, temptation. Then he says, can God die? And that's a greater discussion that I can get into here. Um, Mark Jones, off of Reformation 21, uh, has a good little article on that, and in that article he disagrees with uh, Ligonier Ministries regarding an R.C. Sproul, whether or not um, the second person in the Trinity died. Mark affirms that idea, and I think Mark is basically right. And so, uh, but the point, uh, more central being, is that as um, Peter Atten lays out his argument, I don't think he's um, really addressing the heart of Christianity. So it has a thin veneer, it has an appearance of uh, demonstrating problems in the context of the you know the classical definition of God that He's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, um, 
but what we need to do is take all those terms and do, yeah, like we oppose the God of the philosophers, uh, depending on how we're using that language. And so, again, when it comes at, to that bottom sentence, though, it says, it is logical inconsistencies like these that led the 17th century French theologian Blaise Pascal to reject reason as a basis for faith and return to the Bible and Revelation. Um, I don't think we need to reject reason as a basis of faith. Now, obviously, our faith, uh, the basis of our faith is rooted in what God has done, um, not only in creation and in creating us and revealing the Logos um, to us, uh, but ultimately in his word as well. And his word presupposes uh, reason, because if you can read his word uh, and get the exact opposite meaning of every word in there, um, it does us absolutely no good. And so, uh, the, you know, there's reasons to believe and trust Yahweh, and God's given those in the Bible. So, you know, when these people throw out their little philosophical stuff, realize that nine out of ten times, it's a largely a muttering of the water. And once we kind of become familiar with uh, traditional Christian understanding, um, a lot of the issues are cleared up and go away. Um, so that's this episode of the Campus Church Podcast. And so if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach me on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, or uh, CampusPreacher.com, Keith at CampusPreacher.com. Uh, that's all. We'll talk to you next week. God bless you. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow